But I felt guilty because a lot of my peers would have killed for what I, the opportunities that I was having. I felt it was very lonely to not want what we're told we should want. Mm. Like that was 100% the crossroad moment of, do I do the thing that I should feel lucky that I got to do that other people want me to do? Or do I go and work in Thailand for no money for a man <laughs> that I met in a pub? And I decided to go to the Thailand. Pub. I decided on the pub. <laughs> Life is a puzzle, actually, and we get to bring in the pieces we want and we can add bits and we can take bits out and only we can create the puzzle and only we can make sense of it. Mm. And I think that's the biggest creative project that we have is our lives. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Welcome back, beautiful people. This week, we welcome our first tri-citizen to the show who had just become an Australian citizen the day before we recorded. I always feel so lucky to have such incredible and supportive people around me. And Kemi Nekvapil is one of the wisest and most empowering. How lucky Australia is to have her. And if anyone has heard her speak before, you'll no doubt agree. With British, Nigerian and Australian citizenship, Kemi spent her childhood in seven different foster families and her early adulthood with as many different careers, covering acting on TV and on stage, professional baking and yoga, before she even touched on her current calling as a coach, author, speaker and now podcaster. Through challenge, open-mindedness and a lot of self-development, Kemi has developed a unique resilience, agility and power and I always leave her presence feeling enlightened and excited for human potential. In true CZA fashion, Kemi was an open book and I loved exploring the concepts of cultural identity, self-acceptance, the marvellous workings of the universe and the incredible moment when you realise you have choice. This is the perfect blend of serious, life-changing imparting of wisdom and hysterical laughter about nipple-pinching, body hair and home births. As you'll hear, Kemi's starting her very own podcast this week and the launch is only a few days away on 5th of September. So if you're in Melbourne, I've popped the link for tickets to the launch in the show notes. Kemi would love to meet you all. I hope you enjoy and are all seizing your yay. Darling Kemi. Have we started? We have started. <laughs> Throwing in the deep end. You? <laughs> because what happens? You are cheeky. It's good to know. Thanks for letting me know you're cheeky. Okay. Well, we start the conversation and then all the good stuff happens before I press record. Yeah, and okay. Like, no, that, this is the point. That makes sense. We that catch makes the sense. behind the scenes. Okay, perfect. This is the behind the scenes. I have my turmeric gold pucker tea. Amazing. In my beautifully designed Royal Dalton mug. Which has England. Looks like on London it. Bridge, but yeah. that's not actually London Bridge. It is London Bridge. It's London Bridge and what we used to call the courgette, which people would know as zucchini. Oh, the zucchini. Isn't it the gherkin? It is definitely a green vegetable. Yeah. We can agree (laughs) that it has green vegetable status. Yeah. I thought that that wasn't London Bridge with all the big fancy things. London Bridge is like the really unassuming one next to it. No, that's the Tate. That's the Tate. 
bridge. Oh, yeah. okay. All yeah, right. I believe. But you've been there. You've been there probably sooner. That I, I haven't been there for a while. When were you last in the UK? Oh, were you there? Were you three, there three years ago? Oh, maybe the same time. I don't know. Maybe they've changed the bridges over. There's yeah, so much no. going on. <laughs> maybe mean, it's part of the Brexit plan. <laughs> Change the bridges so they can't get in or out. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the coolest things about Kemi. She has triple citizenship as of yesterday. As of yesterday, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I became an Australian citizen last night. Oh, my gosh. And I brought native flowers. I thought about bringing kangaroo oven mitts and tea towels, and I was like... Mm. Yeah, I'm just glad you didn't bring a kangaroo because that would be messy, a I bit, think. A bit fun. <laughs> yeah, we could reframe it to fun. I mean, we love challenge. <laughs> we do love challenge. <laughs> An opportunity for growth. Yeah. Yes. Would be having a kangaroo in a domestic environment. <laughs> so before we start with Way TA, the first mm-hmm. question I like to ask everyone is what the most down to earth thing is about them. Particularly in this day and age where people like us, you know, are often out and about at events and presenting ourselves in a way that is curated, even without being inauthentic or anything. Mm-hmm. We just put forward the highlights and people get to see us, uh, you know, in our element yeah. and not so much of the, the mm-hmm. nitty-gritty behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a life coach and someone who is a very, very sought-after speaker, it's so easy to think, oh, Kemi's got it all together. She's just this glamorous expert on everything. I mean, that's how I see you. And I'm like, <laughs> you're, you're just uh, the oracle. But, you know, what's something to kind of break the ice and oh remind my, us you're all a human? My gosh. <laughs> the, I think the most grounding thing is being a mother. It yes. doesn't – and I'm now the mother of teenagers. So <gasps> that is a whole different chapter. Talk about <laughs> opportunities for growth. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It is. I love my children. They're incredible. Developmentally, they're doing everything they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And it really is, I think, a test for the parents to be able to see what is developmentally appropriate, Mm -hmm. but also putting in your boundaries around what is appropriate behavior. But there's also that thing, actually, a friend of mine discussed it the other day. She described it as the slap hug. That's, that's what it can be like. Uh, oh, a slap hug. Yeah, because they're pulling away, <laughs> but they still want you when they're feeling a little bit, oh, I pulled away, kind of thought I was cool in the world and stuff was happening. But now it's like, mom, can, can, can I come and hang out with you for a little bit? So it's the slap <laughs> hug. And as a parent, you have to be responsive to each of those things. You can't, I think as a parent of teenagers, if you hold a grudge between, you know, the slap, and I'm not obviously talking about there isn't actually Literal slapping. Lit- not actual <laughs> slaps. Um, it's a different time. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, then if you hold grudges, you know, through the literal, st- then you miss the hugs. Yeah. So there's that kind of adaptability and flexibility of kind of riding their waves as they're riding their waves. And sometimes their waves fall all over you and you feel like sometimes you're drowning. But sometimes they do too. You know, so and then it's they just, need you again. and then they need you again. <laughs> and you it's know, a hug all and over it's a again. hug all over again, and then it's great. So that would—that's the most grounding thing at the moment. But it always oh has gosh. been motherhood. In, since I've become a mother, yeah. it doesn't get more real than that. I mean, I can imagine you coming yeah. home from presenting to thousands of people oh. and being this—you know—I'm a kick-ass businesswoman, and then your kids come snotty and <laughs> oh, pooey. Oh. And oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, luckily they're not snotty and pooey now at 13 and 15. That would I mean, be we a- hope development. I mean, you talked about <laughs> developmental milestones. Yeah, exactly. There we go. There we go. But it's good because they know that once I come home from one of those big, big events, you know, I'm very much an introvert. Although other people may think differently when they see me do my thing. But it's interesting. I also had that idea that introverts were people that didn't like people and that were shy and I'm not shy and I do like people but I recharge away from people so if I've been on stage talking to 2,000 people 
I just want to come home. I just want to just sit quietly. Family night is one of my favourite nights of the week. Family night is uh, Friday night is family night. Mm. And I just want to hunker down with, you know, the people that I love and not do much at all. And that's how I recharge. I'm exactly the same. Yeah, right. It was maybe only 12 months ago that the the whole introversion, Mm. extroversion, like dichotomy kind of started to make sense to me that I thought you have to be an extrovert if you're loud and bubbly. Mm. And And if you're on stage. Yeah. yeah. And if you're confident and, and outwards. Yes. But... I think it more is relating to how you recharge your yeah. energy, where the energy comes from, not how you manifest it, but where it recharges yeah, from. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I'm like quite an introvert. Mm. I need I need no people, and yeah. then I need all the people, and yeah. then no people, <laughs> no people. Then, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm kind of bipolar, but that's yeah. fine. That's fine. <laughs> so your way to yay. Now this is the journey of how you got to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Which, looking at it in hindsight, you are you found exactly where you were meant to be you Mm. are living your purpose Mm -hmm. and it shows every single day (laughs) but the journey is never that simple no and I love reminding everyone that no one's journey is linear Mm. even the parts that make the least sense had a big role in getting you to where you are Mm. so let's go all the way back to the beginning all the way back very very young Kemi yes and I want to hash over it just really quickly. Anyone who wants to know more about Kemi's very, very early years, we were just talking about how there are s- podcasts are prolific at the moment. We've rehashed this a lot of times. <laughs> but just to give everyone a quick rundown, British citizen yes. with Nigerian heritage. Yes. Tell us about the very early years. Okay. So the very early years, I was fostered from the age of two weeks. So I, um, as you said, was born in England, but my parents were very well-to-do Nigerian parents and because of colonization they very much believed that if their children were to have any sense of value in the world they had to become doctors and lawyers which meant they had you know which is any country actually it's not just yeah it's not Nigeria specific um and wanting the best for their children they you know also once again colonization it had to be an English education like mm. that was it that was the only way and I think that kind of story still perpetuates and I think it can be it, it has been damaged in many ways Mm -hmm. this idea of what's in your country isn't good enough for the people that you know which meant I had five different primary carers growing up so I would see my birth mother in school holidays and that sort of thing so we always had a relationship Mm -hmm. it's the best now that it's ever been and I'm very lucky that I had my first set of foster parents and my last set of foster parents were definitely the ones that had the most incredible positive influences on me so there are many that there's actually a movie about to come out called oh I think it's called farming of the farming which is about nigerian children in the 70s that were fostered out to white families wow. yeah and my sister sent me a link from england saying this film is out there's no i can't i wish we could see it together i'm not going to see it on my own you know just want to flag that it's coming so the only person i'd want to see that with is with my husband yeah. um and it's not one it's not a, not going to be a popcorn movie no <laughs> it's just not going to be a popcorn no, movie just... but it's also going to be even in just seeing the trailer i know it spoke things that i it kind of reminded me of things that I had forgotten that I had forgotten or the forgotten that I had remembered. I don't yes. know. Oh, yeah. yeah that's One of a those. Deep, deep question. Yeah. It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. I mean, very different context, but kind of similar in that I was adopted from mm-hmm. South Korea, but then brought here. I mean, I was four or five months old, mm-hmm. have very little recollection of the orphanage there yes. and was brought up by a white Australian family. Yeah. And you end up in this really unique cultural identity yeah. where you're kind of Outwardly, you're Nigerian. I'm yeah. clearly South Korean. Yes. But in our brains, we're yeah. like privileged white, educated yeah. family upbringing. Yes. And, and then 
people love to define you by that yeah. journey. Yeah, they right? do. Yeah, Which absolutely. Which of course they do. I mean, yeah, you know. 100%. But it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because I know that when I speak on stage sometimes and I'll say, for those of us that have privilege, and I can see, I can kind of, <laughs> some people just say, uh, but... But you're, but, you're but, African. You're, but you're, yeah, but what do you mean? You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm a middle class citizen of Australia. There's no doubt about that. I'm educated. English is my first language. I am privileged. I mean, listen to my British accent, I am, guys. Yeah, listen to listen it. Listen to it. Listen to it. That is a London. Although I have started saying things like create. What was it I said the other day? <laughs> I said, oh, I've got to do some creating. And I was like, oh, it's happened. <laughs> I've been here 15 years. You know, my children are Australian. My husband is Australian. <laughs> Even that, see, Australian. Australian. <laughs> I mean, it's citizenship. You've clocked over. It's all I've over. over. That's it's it. All but over. as I said to you, very disappointed there were no lamingtons surrounding my bed as I woke up this morning. <laughs> should have brought them. Yeah, okay, that's it. okay. You're forgiven. <laughs> yeah, You're forgiven. Maybe a pavlova next time. <laughs> so, yeah, very, very interesting beginning. Yeah. But it, also interesting how much people want it to be, you know, crack addict parents. Yeah. Or really, you know, they want that story of underprivileged. But I, I love that you're very much like, no, that's not my story. No, it's I, not my story. And I have to honour my parents. That was not, you know, people make up. And this is a really interesting thing. And I think it's an interesting thing now about stories in our time. And one of the beautiful things Brene Brown talks about is you have to own your story. Mm. Other other people, other people will own it for you. And they mould it for you. And they mould it for you in a way that fits for them. Mm. And so, you know, I have to honour my parents as well. They did exactly what what every single parent wants, which is they did what they thought was the best for their child. Mm. And there were some really negative aspects of that and there were some really positive aspects of that. And I've done my own personal work to make sure that I can use any of my childhood wounds as a positive force in the world. And I think we all get that choice. Absolutely. Yeah. But one of the coolest things that I read that you said about that period of your life was that because so much, there was so much adaptation and so little kind of consistency mm-hmm. or security in yep. those crucial years yes. that it was late for you. You felt like a latecomer to the concept of choice. Yeah. Like rather than kids sitting in school thinking, I want to be a astronaut or whatever you were like I'm surviving in this environment and choice didn't really hit you until I think it was your last foster family yeah Yeah. and I love that from that moment on Mm. choice was something you were like this is an incredible gift and I'm going to always choose yeah always make choices for myself yeah and that's what YTA is all about that every choice contributes to who you become in the end so I would love to start to explore you know at 13 you realized that you loved certain things mm. and that you could choose to mm. bring those into your life. Yeah. So that was food. Yeah. Acting. Yeah. And fashion. Oh, so I love how you just fashion. Fashion. <laughs> and you know, I went crazy with the choice. <laughs> and it's interesting. I just have to quickly say as well. In my childhood, I had no idea I was surviving. I yeah. had no concept. That was just what it was. Yeah. It's obviously as you do your work and you look back and you're like, wow, I never sat and thought about what I could be in the world. Yeah. That was that was not where my brain went at all. It was always a case of I hope these ones won't let me go. And that, that is was it. so different to any experience we've had on the show so far where people do, whether they end up as it or not, yes, most, yes. most childhoods are... I want to be blah, whether or not you end up as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't. But that's one of the gifts I see. One of not having one particular set of parents telling me who I should be. And that if I had to tick particular boxes to be loved by them, it's been very, very freeing. Like Mm. so incredibly freeing. Um, Also the fact that I have have been loved. You know, my first set of foster parents were for my first seven years. And there's that whole thing around the seven year cycle. Yes. 
because a lot of foster kids can have really serious issues with attachment and I feel very blessed that that wasn't the case for me mm. but yeah I just when it came to choice I was just literally it, it was like being in a sweet shop <laughs> give me the cola <laughs> bottles give me the lollipops give me the chocolate give me the all the things so yes when my final foster mum was a careers teacher and she said what do you want to do and I just rolled it out actually children as well was another option working with children fashion textiles um food baking because I think and it's so interesting when you talk about this you know the journey and you know I'm always interested in what nourishes us Mm. and my first set of foster parents you know we had a home-cooked meal every single day they had a kitchen garden my summers were spent picking berries in Kent in England and so food for me was love food was community food was sharing and so when I and I landed with my last foster parents the weekend I landed there at 13, they were making jam from their kitchen garden. So for me, there was kind of this full circle. And when a lot of other children at 13 were kind of developmentally doing, you know, teenage stuff, trying to pull away, I was trying to create connection with these strangers. Yeah. And so I would spend my weekends, it's funny, I'd say to my foster mum, Sue, I'd be like, what can we bake this weekend? What can we bake this weekend? And she's like, <laughs> well, we still haven't finished what we baked last weekend. I know, but there's so many, there's so many possibilities. Let's keep baking. Um, and that became once again a very grounding force for me. So that was where the food aspect came in for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find food, oh, it's just endlessly fascinating. I love how it's a great connector of people and no matter what language you speak, food is a communal experience everywhere you go. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's bad food. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes that can be more connecting because absolutely. you get to connect around, can you believe how bad this is? My husband My actually... food poisoning last night. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My <laughs> husband and I were very, very we're, very... we're vegan and we were very excited about going to a new place. Obviously, it wasn't matcha milk bar, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we went to a new place. We were very excited. It was really not great. It was so... But that we still, like, have a joke, joke about it. Yeah. You know? So even that <laughs> is connecting. It's still... Know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can have a meal with someone in a country that you don't speak any common mm, language and mm. feel like you've known you've connected. Them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, love that. It's I the experience sharing. places through the food. Yeah. That's how I book mm. my trips is around experiencing how they I, th- I feel like it kind of instructs what the culture is as well, mm. like the way they approach it is yep. very much how they approach life. Yeah, that's oh that's true. It's mm. a good way of looking at it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you trained as a baker, which is actually I did. something I didn't know about you, which is oh. so cool. <laughs> I trained as a baker um, because obviously I was baking all weekend, so that seemed like the obvious choice. <laughs> yeah. um, but funnily enough, by the time I'd actually left bakery college, and I do have to say that I topped my bakery class. Of course you did. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> bread baker of the year, cake decorator of the year. I loved Just it. Just making it known on the record, Just guys. making it known because I think we need to celebrate our achievements, Absolutely. even though this was 25 years ago. Still it's good to still bring it to the, the fore. I mean, is the certificate on the wall? Because yeah, exactly. It should be. You can see it blown up in the poster. <laughs> yeah. um, and I loved it because, you know, I had this choice. I had chosen to be there, so I was going to give it everything I had. And it was interesting. It was kind of, in a way, the first time that I was exposed to competition. There's another woman in my class called Louise, and she was lovely, actually. <laughs> the you remember. Yeah, she was lovely. But I remember the class kind of starting this kind of pitching thing against Louise and I because we were the better bakers and... And I remember just, I wouldn't have had this concept then, but I have this concept now. I just stayed in my lane. I did not care what Louise was doing. I wasn't interested. I just, if we had to make four loaves of bread within this time or do a tray of donut, whatever it was, I just did my thing. And it was so funny because people would say, oh, oh, you won or you got this competition or you got this. And it didn't really, that wasn't my aim. 
didn't land. My with aim you. was to give a hundred percent to the thing that I'd committed to do. Mm. Yeah, so I love that. Yeah. I love that it was early as well for you. Because yeah, I feel it kind of like was. You really encouraged that kind of single focus mm. and non-competition. But you know what? I think if I go back earlier, earlier, being a black woman navigating white spaces all my life, I would never belonged in anyone else's lane. Yes. So it, you know, it, it was made, kind of, yeah, in some yeah. ways, you know, there's a the negativity of that as well. There's the racism, there's the, but I really learn at 16, if I keep comparing myself to other people, I'm never going to, like, this is never going to work. Life is just not going to work for me. Yeah. So maybe I hadn't, I haven't really thought about this. Maybe I had that inkling, you know, I had that inkling at drama school, um, at bakery school. Um, and just before then I'd had this realisation of if you compare yourself to other people, you know, it's, it's not, not going to work. Up. It's not going to go, because... If you're comparing yourself to the white blonde girls and you've been raised to believe that that is the pinnacle mm. of everything and you are trying to somehow what step – like it's just never going to happen. So, so you have to stay in your own lane. I actually think that's another thing that I, I share with you in that as a you know Asian with a 10-year-old boy body, mm. all these <laughs> – all of my classmates in my, you know, high schools were blonde and curvy mm, and like mm. going through all these things in puberty that yeah. I was like waiting for them to come in and I'm in a crop top still. Yeah, it's not yeah, happening. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. it, it forces you very early to get comfortable with your differences mm. in a way that you don't have to do otherwise. If you're not already kind of other yes. at the start, you don't yes. have to get comfortable with it till much later. But I feel very, very grounded in you know celebrating the parts of me that I do love because you have to because you have to yeah because Cause you, you look different because you, you, you look know? different and you have to and it's funny what you said about then about you know the boy the 10 year old boy's body I very <laughs> I much have, have an, one, I though. very much have an African woman's body and I remember being a teenager at one one of the schools I'm not sure which one it was and the popular girls had spread this rumor that I they did this thing I don't know I just remember this. I remember just thinking, that must hurt. I don't know if this is X-rated or not. Oh, well, you fine. can beep me. <laughs> well, they would pinch their nipples until they were really sore. So they looked like, so they swelled. So they had like oh. bigger breasts. And I'd see them doing that like after swimming or after a sport. And then they started a rumour that I was doing that. And and I was like, oh, I'm not. Why do I do that? Yeah. It really hurts. <laughs> this like, is genetics, just, baby. This is just happening. <laughs> this is just this is genetics. You know. Totally. Um, so yeah, I love that. You're right. You have to. We have to. And I think it's a journey. I think it's a journey when you're not surrounded by people that look like you. Yeah. And it's an ongoing thing. To be honest, I think it's an ongoing thing. I mean, now I'm just like, I have no body hair. It's pretty awesome. But you know, <laughs> okay, that just got X-rated. <laughs> yeah. But at <laughs> you the just time, took it to the. <laughs> then I was like yeah. Where, why everyone else is having to shave oh, and like yeah. I want to have to do that yeah. and I don't and, and it's really like yeah I don't need a Brazilian butt lift I don't need Botox yeah. in my in my lips do you know what I mean yeah. I just this is just how I come this is just how I came <laughs> and I don't need a tan so there you go oh yes oh my god a lot of money saved <laughs> so, much so bizarre money. isn't so it effort. so much time <laughs> and I've got no hair at that oh my god okay when did that happen when did you I do... can tell you when that happened I would love to hear I've never asked you this before. oh okay so I was living in Canberra when I first came to Australia my beautiful in-laws who I love very much invited my husband and I well we were boyfriend and girlfriend then but I was up the duff <laughs> boyfriend <laughs> oh yeah we'll, we'll come back to that yeah, yeah there you go put know. a bullet point in that we'll <laughs> and um my son Benjamin was six months old he was asleep upstairs they had a lounge sort of downstairs and I was twisting my hair so my hair was probably at this point about four inches long and I was twisting it into afro hair you take two strands and you twist them around each other and because the hair's so curly it, it just stays. stays yeah that would take me two movies 
to do that, right? So when I was in my Whoa. flat in London, in Notting Hill, Queen's Park, I would just sit, you know, and just do my hair. Mates would come around or whatever, and I would do it. And I remember just thinking, my son was six months old. It was one o'clock in the morning. I was about to put on the second movie. Just and I was like, I, I should be asleep. <laughs> like, this is not an efficient use of time. And I, I also thought... was like, no, I'm done. It's just not, I'm, I'm done. done with hair And altogether. I also felt, and they say this about women and hair... I also just felt this hairstyle that I have now was single chemi in London. I'm now mother. I live in Australia. Yes. Time for something new. You rock it like nothing else. Oh, I love it. I love it. The only other thing I'd have is dread, like very, very thin dreads. And I'm not willing to grow the hair it would take to have that. So this will be it. (laughs) This will be it now. Yeah. And I'm hoping it will all go silver. That's kind of, that's what I'm hoping. Um, And my husband woke up to a woman with shaved head. Oh my oh, god! He had no you idea. He was asleep. Him? No, he was asleep. <laughs> I don't need to tell him. It's my hair. Oh, amazing! <laughs> <laughs> Hi, luckily, honey. yeah, that's right. Morning, um, and he loved it. So oh that my was god, good. that is the best yeah, story he ever. Loved it. I love that so much. It was like no notice, just. Morning. Hi. Hi. What? What, what? what is it? What's weird? Yeah. Why are you looking at me? To be honest, sometimes I have actually, I have been known to repaint the house and my husband come home and go, is there something different? <laughs> so, but he did notice my hair. Oh, so. well, I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, that's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned Freudian slip just before drama school. Yes. Instead of bakery it was a, school. It was. So how did you go from bakery school to drama school and then become an actor on British television and part of the Royal Shakespeare Company? which is incredible and a career in itself yeah that's that's right so it was a strategic plan strategic plan of my career career focused foster mum who said to me if you want to do fashion or if you want to do acting they're very hard industries to get into so why don't you get a trade first and you've looked at childcare and baking and chefing so that was where that came from so it's to choose a trade first mm-hmm. in case I completely you know did not I think she was trying to just protect me you let's, know let's hedge let's, let's just hedge our bets yeah. you know um, <laughs> smart woman but I was very lucky I actually went to a drama school to get into drama school so I remember at the time it was something like for every English drama school place there was a hundred one thousand five hundred people applying Whoa. and so this was you know this was yeah like this the, st- the stakes were very very high so we decided that I would go to a drama school to get me into drama school so that was a year that was in Whitechapel in London yep and I was commuting from Hertfordshire every single day oh it was a long gosh. commute um it's amazing I learned then how exhausting commutes can be like I really understand why people just decide I just cannot do the commute you know that's it um and I got into five drama schools oh in the end ever the (laughs) overachiever and I chose an incredible school called Arts Educational in Chiswick and I chose that school because it was focused on method acting um, oh, that is the coolest. Yeah, which was based on kind of Uta Hagen. You know, think of any of the characters. Think of Daniel Day-Lewis. Think of all the actors we admire where you know that it has cost them to portray the character they portray. Mm-hmm. The joke is about to come out, the Marvel. <gasps> I cannot believe I just mentioned that. See, my son has now infiltrated <laughs> my mind. It's not the movie I expected you to name. <laughs> no, but we went, my son kind of duped me. into. He said to me the other day, a couple of weeks ago, he goes, Mum, he goes, you like Idris Alba, don't you? And I, I said, darling, if I hadn't have met your father first, 
you know, maybe, you know, maybe you'd be, you know, Idris's Or even offspring. if I have met your father. I mean, <laughs> no, if you, I mean maybe no. he's my whole pass. <laughs> and um, he said, do you want to come see a movie with me, with Idris? And I was like, yeah, Benji, that'd be great. And then I said, what is it? After I'd said yes, he said, it's Fast and Furious, I don't know, 78 or something. Yeah, and I was like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, if we're going to do this, let's do IMAX, let's get premium seats, let's bring in all the chocolate and the popcorn. And then I can just sleep. You know, and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I can just sleep. But actually it was quite, I love The Rock, so. Oh, yeah. And I love Idris. It was great. Funny. I was ready. I knew what to expect. You yeah. know, it was fantastic. How did we get onto the Marvel? Ah, oh, the Joker. Yes. So the trailer of the Joker played and Joaquin Phoenix is a Joker. Now, all night in my head and the next morning, I wasn't thinking about Fast and Furious. I was thinking about this two-minute portrayal of Joaquin Phoenix doing the Joker. And I said to my son, this is not going to be an easy watch because that is an actor that goes deep. Mm, it's like Christian Bale. Yeah, like Christian Bale. Like Intense. it's yeah. Intense intense and there are lots of incredible female actresses as well that have done that um oh that wonderful film about the transgender girl oh i've forgotten that hillary swank hillary swank she's amazing amazing you know one that comes to mind viola davis in fences that these actors that are will- that you know that they're pulling everything out of themselves mm. so that i went for that you know i went for that i think one thing i got as well from my child is that I don't, I don't, I, I can be with other people's pain. I can be with my pain. And so, and I think we all experience that. So then mm-hmm. to be able to do that in a way that gives other people access to something. So I was at drama school. I loved it. Um, I thought that I would come out of there doing community theatre because I loved, I love how art can change the world in many ways or just change one person's mind. Yeah. But I left drama school, got an amazing agent, and she was amazing because Jessica would put me up for roles that didn't state a black actress, which basically meant nurse, drug addicts, girlfriend. (laughs) Seriously, drug addict, drug addict workers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she wouldn't. And actually, she caused a bit of a ruckus with um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's um, management because they were casting for a musical and there were no black actors had been called. And it was set in like 19, 1960s America South or something like that. And there were no... And she in was the like, South yeah, as well. She was like, like what are you, what are you, what's going on? <laughs> um, but she was great. And I one day went for... I had three auditions, I think, in one day. And she said to me, or in one week, she said, there's a community theatre show that's touring around England for six months. There's a TV show and there is a movie. She said, you probably won't get the movie because this is your first audition out of drama school. You probably won't get the TV show because but it's experience Mm -hmm. and you know and they I think they came to my review or something they've already seen you a little bit and I think that the community that's what you wanted and so then when we get the call that I got the tv show (laughs) she was like uh you had better um I was working as a chef funnily enough in the head of my drama school and I became very good friends and he opened a restaurant and he said will you come and head chef for me set up the menu and I said I would love to and um, I was working there and my agent called me and said, you've just got the job on TV. And, I, and she said, you've got a week and then you start filming. And I said, <laughs> but the restaurant opens next week. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> and, and she said, Kemi, you've just like... You're on British television. Like, yeah, like, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and she said to me then, she said, um, you're a little bit different, aren't you, than other actors? <laughs> You're a little bit different. You're a little, I mean, yes, that yeah. sums you up. Which I mean, I did, love that. Which did, but, and, and what it meant, I think what she meant by that is that acting wasn't my life. Okay, I yeah. hadn't grown up from the age of three thinking this is what I wanted, you know, which we've touched on earlier. Yeah. So for me, it's like this opportunity has come, I'm in it 100%. 
But then, you know, it got to the point that seven years later, after exactly working on... Actually, that gig was three and a half years long. Wow. And for the last six months, I actually started writing my my, um, character's scripts. That's so cool. And it was amazing. And some of my best and dearest friends I met on that show because you're there every single day. And I know why people get paid a lot of money. Like, it, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. You're there every single day from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. There's a lot going on. Um, And also I got to the point where I did become kind of a poster child for, you know, to be a a female black actor with a lead role um, on British TV that people would see three times a week was a really big thing in the late 90s. And so I then started experiencing... You know, not high-level fame by any means, but people that watched that show knew who I was. Yeah. And I didn't know then that I was an introvert. So oh. I actually really struggled with the attention. Your, I, yeah, yeah I, I spent a lot of time. I didn't have a car because I just ethically didn't believe I needed one in London. Mm. A lot of my other cast members did so they could just get in their car and drive home. I'd be on the tube and people would be... Oh. And as someone, some, you know, sometimes you'll have people whispering about you for negative reasons, depending on where you are in the country, in England. And so sometimes I couldn't work out whether people were whispering about me because I was black. I couldn't work out if they were whispering about me because they saw me on television. I, I just couldn't. So I, I read a lot of books in that mm. room because I hid behind the books. Sometimes I had <laughs> to get out of trains or get off of buses or leave places. You were the, the woman with like the big turban scarf. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like With the kind of Monty Python beard. Yeah. yeah. And like Are there big any sunglasses women in here? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, no, no. Um, and I really struggled with that. And it is one of the reasons I gave up acting. Because yeah. I thought there is no amount of money anyone can pay me to give away my privacy. Mm. There, and I have such respect for those incredible actors like Glenn Close. We have no idea what she's doing. She just turns up and does incredible movies. You know, Meryl Streep, um, John Malkovich, he's kind of older. We, and, and a lot of maybe actors that are my age too, well, you, just, you have no idea what's going on with them. You, they don't need to have no, they private don't. life Well, they've just too. decided for whatever reason mm. that that doesn't need to be a part of my, my, um, of my craft. And there are other actors that have decided this is part of it and some have maybe gone a little bit too far to the other side. Mm. Um, but I just decided I, this isn't worth it for me. I, I want to be able to walk down the street with my friends and not have people stop. And I found it very, um, um, I don't know what the word is. People will come up and say, oh, my God, you're the girl from, you're the woman on blah, blah. And once I say, yes, that's me, I mean, they just stand there staring at me. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, it's not it's comfortable. Like, <laughs> and, it, it's like, and, I, and I didn't, uh, and I remember thinking, oh, I don't know what you want. Like, what are you... I don't know what to give you now. Like, I'm not who you think I am. I'm a character. Mm. And you do get those people that will say, oh, my God, I cannot believe that that happened to you last week. It's like it didn't really happen. <laughs> didn't but really happen. What a credit to your acting, though. <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. Like, it's so, so believable. believable. <laughs> um, so that was like little seeds that started planting for me of, well, it didn't matter. I wasn't making any decisions. It, there were just little red flags for me Yeah. of like, this is going to be part of this whole package. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love the seed thing description Mm. because I think that's how decisions get made yeah and I think that's the thing that people struggle with the most is when is it the right time for a big change oh how do you know that you're Mm. ready or how do you know that you're not ready yet but you're going to do it anyway yes so what then led you I mean you did quite a drastic another drastic turn after that what led you to the bringing to an end that career and then I mean, you moved to Thailand then I moved to, to Thailand. teach yoga. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's quite... And yeah. that was before it was trendy yeah. to go to Thailand and teach yoga. Yeah, yeah. Now that's quite a soul-searching like stage of your life that people do to help them find yes. the decisions that they want to make. But yeah. 
you know, you you were really ahead of the curve. What drove you to that? I mean, you've been doing yoga and meditation for 20 years. Yeah. How did that become yeah. a, I'm going to do this and stop my acting career yeah. on purpose? Yeah, and it's actually, it's funny. I was talking to about the yoga thing the other day. I'm not very good with timelines. That's a, that's a foster child thing. And my husband said, babe, you started doing yoga when you were 20 or 45. That's 25. It's a quarter of a decade. You know, you've been doing, you know. Yeah, you know. I mean, and that, I let's crunch century. the numbers. I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I may have been ahead of the curve, but not ahead of my curve. Yes, which so, is the only curve that matters. Which is the only curve that matters. It was really interesting. So I then got into the RSC, once again, my agent who had absolute faith in me, but you know, it's the RSC, and um, went for that audition and got the yes, you're in. So spent two, and a, two years at Stratford-upon-Avon. <gasps> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so beautiful. My English country dream. Oh, and then. Guys, it's in the Cotswold. It's, it's out, of, yeah, out of London. It's out of just, London. The, yeah, it's where, it's where Shakespeare was born. This and, is where this ring is from. Oh, is it? It's from the Rose Theatre. Oh, oh, wow. And I got it in Stratford upon Avon. Oh, there you go. How Beautiful. funny. There you go. Yeah. There you go. You might have to give it to me because I actually was in the Royal Shakespeare, yeah. Shakespeare Company I mean, company you probably there. deserve it so more you than probably, me. Yeah. Yeah. Just leave it on the table <laughs> I mean, hand it as over. you leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I loved it and it was great. And part of that season was that we were going to New York with the Royal Shakespeare Company. We were playing at the Brooklyn Arts Academy. One of my oldest friends lives in New York. She's an amazing photographer and... Um, she, I invited her, I was staying with her and I said, come along to this massive, you know, night, the Royal Shakespeare, Royal Shakespeare Company has arrived in New York, it's a massive gala event. We're standing there and I'm eating this wrap and at the time I ate meat and... Um, I love you remember the wrap. Oh yeah, well this is, well this was the biggest red flag, <laughs> right? So I'm eating the wrap and I turn to Tatiana, one of my oldest friends. And, you know, the head of the Brooklyn Arts Academy is speaking and everyone is just transfixed by what he's saying. And I go to Tatiana, I go, hey, hey, what do you think's in this wrap? And she's like, shh, you know, I'm watching the guy. And I was like, yeah, yeah. But it's like dill or chervil or something. It's amazing what they've done with it. And they poached the chicken. In. Oh, and she's like, will shut you shut up, up about oh. the wrap? <laughs> We're here with the Royal Shakespeare Company, you know. And then I was like, yeah, yeah. I need to go back to food. <laughs> I care more about the rap at this point. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. I'd had a conversation near then with another actor who had told me that she'd wanted to be Macbeth from the age she was three, Lady Macbeth. Actually, she could be Macbeth now. Um, she wanted to be Lady <laughs> Macbeth and um, from when she was three. And I remember just being in my dressing room that night and I thought, this is such fun. This is great. I would never, ever, my childhood never, ever told me that I could ever be here in a dressing room with the Royal Shakespeare Company in New York. But I cannot do this for the rest of my life. Mm. And I know that this is fun, but this is not why I'm meant to be here. But I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was meant to be here, but I knew that wasn't it. I knew I, that being Lady Macbeth at 40 was not the goal that I was aiming for. But it took me 18 months to mm. leave acting. One was going in for an audition with, for a very, very well-known TV show. And then the casting director's asking me questions and in my head thinking, you don't give a stuff about, you don't care about me. And actually, I really don't want this job. And I walked out of there and I was very emotional because I thought you're now selling yourself out. Yeah, and this is not your This is not what you're supposed that. to be doing. Yeah. I knew I would write. I just bought a flat in Queen's Park. I wanted to be at home decorating my flat. I did not want to be having a casting audition. But I felt guilty because a lot of my peers would have killed for what I, the opportunities that I was having. I felt it was very lonely to not want what we're told we should want. Mm. Um, the money, the, you know, the opportunities, all that sort of thing. But then the universe did its thing. And a friend said to me one day, what do you want to do? I said, I would love 
to travel the world chefing and teaching yoga. And about a week later, she came into the vegetarian restaurant that I was working in, in Notting Hill. And she said, I've just met this guy. He's opening up a, re- uh, a resort in Thailand. He needs a chef. The resort is going to have A-list celebrities arriving and coming. Everyone that he has interviewed gets so starstruck when he mentions the names. And I just thought, you're already a kind of celebrity and you're a <laughs> chef. I reckon it's your job. Meet him in the pub. And I met him in the pub and within an hour he said, the job is yours. He said, there's no money. I won't pay you, but you get to be, live in Thailand for as long as you want on the resort. Your job is to teach Thai chefs how to cook European food. You can teach yoga. You can practice yoga. Do you want to do it? And I got home that night and on my answer machine was my agent saying, you've just been offered the biggest deal for a black actor in England directing, producing and acting rights on this show that I had been. And that was one of those crossroads. Yeah. Like that was... the crossroad moment of do I do the thing that I should feel lucky that I got to do that other people want me to do or do I go and work in Thailand for no money for a man that I met in a pub and I decided to go to Thailand I decided on the pub I decided on the pub and no one in my life supported me to make that decision. Oh, my gosh. No no one could understand it. And I, I, in some ways, I didn't understand it. I just knew I had to go. I was willing to have people not understand. I was willing to have people question me. I was becoming really unhappy. Mm. And, and it's amazing because you take the leap, you do the scary thing, and six weeks later, I met my husband. Th- that is the perfect example of three things. One, you don't have to do something just because you're good at it. Yeah. And I think that's we, especially people who are grateful, tend to think that if Mm. you've been bestowed with these skills, you should be using them, Mm. particularly if there are other people out there who would kill to be in your position. You know, and I think that tricks you a lot into this feeling of obligation to use all the skills you have Mm. in one direction. Yes. Which doesn't always make you happy. No. Number two. The universe, once you energetically change your mind, the universe will follow you. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. And it only does it if you're open to it. Yes. But if you can see those opportunities, then, you know, yeah. they'll come. Yeah. And the third thing is that you don't need to know where you're going to end up to know where the next step needs to be, regardless mm. of what anyone else thinks. Yeah. And once you make that decision and take the leap, the universe rewards you yeah. with Everything that has since happened, which is everywhere yeah. that you've ever wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really lonely. I found it incredibly lonely and mm. really hard mm. in making the decision, which is why it took me 18 months. I had to be really unhappy for 18 months before I was willing to take the leap. But the moment, I'll tell you what, the moment I landed in Thailand, yeah, you were done. Well, I, was, I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, bring on the Pad Thai. Right, let's, do, let's do this. Yeah, it was great. One of the quotes I shared the other day on uh, the quote of the day segment was sometimes growing feels like breaking first. Oh, yeah. And I think it's so true. Yeah. You have to break yeah. and then otherwise how do you put the pieces back together? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the beautiful thing is that we get to – that life is a puzzle actually and we get to bring in the pieces we want and we can add bits and we can take bits out and only we can create the puzzle and only we can make sense of it. Mm. And I think that's the biggest creative project that we have is our lives. Oh my gosh. I'm just so excited about everything that we're talking about right now. It's just so exciting. It's so exciting for people to hear that they can control their circumstances. Because I think that's the big rut everyone gets into is I don't have a choice. Like choice, Mm. you embody choice for me. Mm. And the whole story from the very beginning Mm. of not having it and then realizing is just we all have choice. We all have choice. But we may, we may, I think where we get stuck is that we think we have to like the choices. Mm, Or that they have to feel right all the time. Yeah. Or that they have to be the only choices that we thought were options. 
Yes. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So I had said after I'd done my yoga teacher training in India, I was basically kind of, um, I don't have a religious, um, I don't, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And I would say to the universe every night, like, I'm ready for love. I'm ready for the partner. I will travel anywhere. I'll go wherever I need to go to find the right person. Now, when I said that I lived in Queens Park, I kind of meant, you know, I was happy to go to Chiswick. Like, <laughs> the, like, yeah. the, the, like the other end of the tube line. Yeah, like a couple of stations. Like a couple of stations, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Australia was, not, was no. not what I had envisaged in any way. And not via Thailand. And not via Thailand. No, exactly. <laughs> or via Europe because my husband and I actually ended up, he was finishing his law degree and that's a law connection. Mm-hmm. He was finishing his law degree in Amsterdam. I was chefing in London. So we would, <laughs> we would date around Europe. So he would say, where shall we meet up this weekend? And I and we did like, he was really madly into trance music. So no. we did like a three-week trance festival in Greece. I um, love lived in a tent together. trance, by the way. Why? It, what was, oh, it's trance, babe. Tra- trance? <laughs> what do I call it? It's trance. It's trance. Trance, yep. <laughs> Amazing. Here I am, trancing. Yeah, guys, trancing. Uh, we're going to a trance festival this weekend. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Oh my gosh! So yeah. you met him in Thailand? Yes. Fell pregnant. Dated fell pregnant. Around dated around. Well, we dated around Europe, and then actually, I fell pregnant in Australia. Funnily enough, <gasps> so we were going to split. Oh. We were going to split because my husband had said to me, "I want to go to Germany, and there's stuff I want to do in Germany." And I thought I don't really want to go to Germany, so I thought I'll go back to England. I think this has been great. We love each other, but this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. I was going to go back to India and do my advanced teacher training, and. And then I got home. On, he said to me, we always used to have a, a, a goodbye whiskey at the airport. We had a lot of airports <laughs> that so we would, cute. you know, and we'd always have a goodbye whiskey. And we had this whiskey. And my husband said to me, I reckon you should do a pregnancy test. And oh, I'm my like, God. Why? He said, I've just got a feeling. And I was what? like, oh, my gosh, that's really weird. Because for me... I'd never thought about, I didn't think I'd ever have children, not because of trauma from being fostered. I just thought, I know that you don't have to have your own children to have an impact in other children's lives. Yeah. So I am really happy to be around children, but I don't have, I don't need to have them for myself. Yeah. And so when he said that to me, I was like, but I don't get pregnant. Like I my mean, friends get pregnant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is not but a thing I, this I do. Isn't, this isn't what I, so I then had 24 hours on the plane on my own because he was in Melbourne. He put me on the plane back to England and I got up so many times hoping that my period had come, that the steward came, stewardess came up to me and said, are you okay, madam? Because we've noticed that you've been going to the toilet a lot. <laughs> because I was like, what I can't kind of be drugs pregnant. I can't be pregnant. Like, oh and then gosh. I sort of sat on the plane, you know, thousands and thousands of miles up in the air. And I was like, actually. I'm probably pregnant. If I am pregnant, I'm so glad that I had already decided if I was going to have children. I would not have been that open and vulnerable to anyone that I would not want to have children with anyway, to be yes. honest. Yeah. Um, and so I'd already made that decision that if I, you know. And so then I did my pregnancy test and it was fun. I did my pregnancy test back at home with Sue, my last foster mum. And the pregnancy test was positive. And I said to her, I said, I'm so sorry. And she goes, why, why? are you so I'm 28 years old and I'm apologising. And I went, oh, I think it's because I'm at home and you're here. I think I'm 18. And yeah. I kind of got pregnant out of wedlock. Yeah. Uh, like, you know. Teenage and, pregnancy yeah, at 28. exactly, at 28. And she said, when you called me and said that you and, you and your husband, you know, your boyfriend... We're going to split up because of the country different, you know, difference. I, w- I actually thought, oh no, he was the one. So she was really happy. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's a yeah. best story. So I called him and I said, we're having a baby. And he said, I'm going to come to England. 
And I said, no, I'll come to Australia. Well, there were a few different conversations, actually. I had a really tough pregnancy and he was going to stay here. But then he actually came over to London and looked after me for six months. And, um, and then we moved to Australia. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That yeah. is the coolest story. And we haven't even touched on how I know you, like the bit since I met you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, this is amazing. <laughs> but it's nice to be able to talk about the bits that I don't often But they're the best about. bits. Yeah. I love those yeah. bits yeah. because people, you know, hear a lot of the story. Yeah, that's right. Often. Yeah. And this is the podcast where I love to just chat about the other yeah. stuff. Like yeah. two home births. Two home births. What the actual? Yes. In, look, this is so interesting. Like one thing... One thing I think I can say, but also the caveat is I am always growing. Like growth mm. is one of my core values. But what I can also own is that I know myself very well. Yes. And when my husband then boyfriend walked into the hospital to have the 12-week scan, I knew you that nothing was going to be expanding in that place. My, nothing was going to be opening up to six, eight centimetres. And I <laughs> said to my... Specifically. Yeah, because that's, that's the, you yeah, know. Yep. And I said to him, oh, my, I forgot I don't like these places. Yeah. And I get that they're very important if you need to have them. But I, I don't, like I just didn't, I just said I don't, I don't feel good here. And then he said, my God, I love the universe, right? So then he said, this is the words out of his mouth. My mum was the go-to home birth specialist in Canberra in the 70s. Shut do you want to talk to her? And I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'll do. I just, I'd never even heard of home birth or anything. I hadn't thought about it. I was so uneducated. I think a lot of women are. I had no idea how my body worked. Mm. Um, I, um, had no, I just had no idea. The only vision of pregnancy I'd ever seen was a woman lying horizontal in a hospital bed screaming. Mm. That was it. And the baby coming out all clean. All clean. And, 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 and a little bit bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit bigger yeah. than one would imagine. Yeah. Um, and... So I had never met my um, mother-in-law-to-be, but we started having weekly conversations and she would talk to me about it and I said, yep, that's what I'm... She said, do you want to, do you want to hear about it? I said, no, I don't need to hear about it. That's what I'm going to do. And so we moved. That's one reason we came to Australia. We moved to Australia, her and my husband were my birth partners. We had amazing home births. I also had my hospital bag packed for two weeks before the due date, just in case, because mm. that's what hospitals are for. But I was surrounded by people that believed in it. And I believed in my body and I believed that if my body couldn't do what it needed to do, the hospital, we were in Canberra, the hospital was like 10 minutes away, had a midwife on site, um, one, midwife, one midwife for the first birth and two midwives for the second birth. And yeah, I, I had really, really tough pregnancies. I had incredible births. You know, and I wow. love being a mum. Some people have great pregnancies and then find the motherhood bit tough and that's the longest bit. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the permanent bit. Yeah, so. that's the permanent <laughs> bit. Um, and it, I feel very privileged to have had that journey um, of being able to own my birth. Mm. And because of that, I then, people say to me, how was your birth? And I remember the first time I said it was amazing. The reaction I got from other women was that that was weird yeah. and that wasn't okay. So I sort of started dumbing down like my experience it. a little bit, yeah. just kind of playing it down a little bit. But I also joined the Maternity Coalition in Canberra at that time because I realised how important it is for women to be able to choose their birth, whatever they choose, um, and to be informed and for them to make their choice. And I remember joining the Maternity Coalition and I was on a stall at a particular event and this 80-year-old woman, and we used to ask women, what's your birth story? And this 80-year-old woman came up to me and she told me her birth story and she was sobbing and I just held her for like 10 minutes because she just felt like all of her power had been taken away from her. Mm. Um, 
And the conversation around birth now is different, and, but also the, the conversations that women are having with each other and the conversations that not only that we're allowed to have in inverted commas, but the conversations that we are demanding around our bodies and what we do with them is changing the landscape of birth. And in England, for example, a GP now has to say, you have an option of a cesarean, you have an option of a home birth, you have an option of a wow. birthing uh, suite. And we now get choice. Once again, it goes back to choice. I was just about to say. It goes back to choice. And people will say to me, oh, I wish I could do a home birth. But I, I'm like, home birth is not the goal. The goal is to have a healthy mum and a healthy baby. Whatever that looks Whatever like. Whatever that you. looks like. And I just personally knew I don't think I can thrive in this environment. And I had another choice and I chose the other choice. And it turned out really well. Is it any surprise to anyone listening at this point that where most people at this point would be, you know, I'm a mum, I'm done now. I mean, I've done all these careers. I'm, I'm just going to kick back. No, she's had an entire another career on top of that. Two books, is about to launch a podcast, lots of volunteer and charitable positions and commitments as well. I mean, I literally, she is the fairy godmother of life. <laughs> no one has ever called me the fairy godmother. <laughs> well, Where's my like wand? You just fly Where's around like with all the answers. But I just, do you know what's interesting? Do you know what's interesting though? Is that it looks like sometimes on the outside that I do a lot of things. I actually don't. I don't commit to a lot of things. Mm. I am aware of my energy levels. Mm. I want to give 100% to what I say yes to, which means I say no to most things. Um, you know, the organisations that I support, which are the Hunger Project. Um, and the Australian Indigenous and, Mentoring Experience. Yeah, AIM as well, which is the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. It's a mouthful, but it explains exactly what it does. So descriptive. It's so descriptive. <laughs> um, it says exactly what it does, you know, says yeah. on the tin. <laughs> yeah. um, and I knew, and I think this is once again putting trust. I remember doing um, some personal development work once and we were asked you know, what are the golden nuggets of your life? We sort of had to go through our biography and look at what were the messages that you were told. And one of the things that I was told, even through my childhood and everything, one thing I actually always knew was that everything was going to be okay, Mm. even though I didn't feel like it. Mm. I just kind of knew everything was going to be okay. And one of the other messages I got along the way was to keep going. Um, And I always knew that I wanted to somehow be of service to Africa. But I knew I did not want to do it in the old school missionary way that othered people that had it at the black people needed to be saved. Mm. Um, That, you know, this kind of idea of the white saviour. And I need to just quickly say there's an incredible Instagram page called Not White Saviours or No White Saviours. And they have very, very tough conversations around that sort of thing. Mm. Um, But I didn't know what was out there. I didn't know what was out there. And then um, met this incredible woman that you will know, Emma Isaacs. Met her for the first time. We bonded on home births. We bonded. Yes, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. she's a home birther too. (gasps) She's been on the show, guys, if you want to skip back and have a listen. (laughs) (laughs) And I, she just sent me a tweet that night when I, when I was on I'm not on Twitter anymore sent me a tweet saying I really think you, you should meet this woman at the time it was Kathy Burke who was the CEO of The Hunger Project and I just looked into The Hunger Project work and it's basically coaching it's basically the hungry can get themselves out of hunger the hungry have the same intellect and internal resources as everyone else on the planet Mm. and they know how to get themselves out of hunger better than anyone else on the planet now there are external resources they may not have but why don't we work on their mindset so they can tap into what they have and then together collaboratively we we can work out what's the next step and as soon as I heard that I was like right I'm on board what can I do and I did my first trip um, I think it was 2014 over to Uganda and one of my goals from doing that was I would love to be able to lead these trips. So now I'm a, a lead facilitator for the Hunger Project trips oh and go over with 20 business owners from Business Chicks to Ghana 
next year. Oh, how incredible. Yeah, so that's very, very exciting. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And we so look wonderful. at what does leadership look like in a village compared to leadership with all the privileges that we have mm-hmm. and what can we learn from leadership in the village? Because it's the same. It's the same idea of you set a vision, you have a commitment, you take action, and then you pivot if you need to, you make a bigger action, and then you commit, and then it keeps on going and keeps on going. So it's a very, very um, empowering model, and it's the same with AIM. You know, AIM is looking at university students mentoring um, Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders islander children from year 10 and up so then they basically have someone that has their back that is walking with them and it's osmosis so the you know the australian person that maybe has doesn't really have that much contact with indigenous people or indigenous communities gets to have an inside connection with someone and that person that maybe doesn't see that there's a place for them at university Mm. has someone literally there for them saying i believe in you and we can do this together and jack bancroft that that runs that he is one of the most inspiring incredible incredible ceos i've ever met um and so it's just such a privilege to do work with aim as well and they're my two you know I that, that that's where I put my time and my effort and that's where my joy comes from and occasionally there may be other things that that, that speak to me that I will um, contribute to in certain ways in, in I like to contribute time more than anything mm. um but my husband and I have just funded a women's um, leadership program in India. Um, and so we're actually taking the children to India in January to go and see the work that those women have done over the last year. Oh so that's my gosh. pretty awesome. That is so incredible. Yeah. Guys, this is all on the side of, mind you, <laughs> Kemi's Raw Kitchen, which started in 2009, and then Raw Beauty Queen in 2011, and the incredible live coaching that you do, as well as the podcast that is about to come out on the 5th of September, yes. the books that you've written, yes. you're a Dare to Lead facilitator as well, yes. which you've just done just in Houston, done. was it? Yes, with Brené Brown. With Brené Brown. With Brené Brown. Like, honestly, Kemi, yeah. calm your tears, babe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I've got to say some of these Aussie sayings. <laughs> I don't think I can say that properly. I'd say like calm your boobs. Or calm your memories. Yeah, calm your <laughs> calm your memory glands. Yeah. Please. That's, please. <laughs> please. Um Yeah, look, life is um I don't have long. We don't have long. Mm. We don't have long. And But I love that you found your way to coach. I mean, that is Yeah. You are such an imparter of all this wisdom. Like it's one thing to have all these revelations, but then to share that in a really accessible, relatable way to other people yeah. is a different skill altogether. Yeah, but you know what's interesting? That coaching isn't so much about sharing wisdom. Coaching is about creating a space. Um, I probably mm. share my experiences more when I'm on stage. That's where I get to do that. Yep. Coaching is more about what I've just shared about the Hunger Project. Coaching, what we do as coaches well, what we should do, not all coaches do this, but as an ICF credentialed coach, which is very important for me to have that credentialing, mm-hmm. our job as coaches is to ask questions for people to tap into their own inner resources. Consultants tell people what to do and how to do it. Yeah. That's not the job of a coach. If I'm to give my client advice, I will ask permission and I will generally work with someone for a minimum of 12 months. My longest client has been five years um, because as I grow, they grow and you know things change and they need coaching on different things. I will give advice only if they ask me to because they know I have experience in that area or I will ask permission because I'm seeing a pattern, mm-hmm. you know? So I will say, can I give you some advice on what I'm hearing? Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm hearing is A, B, C, and D and what, you sh- what you've shared with me about your values or where you want to go, I'm not sure that's the best thing for you. Yeah. Or I think that would be great for you, although you're challenged by the choice, Yeah. you know? So um, 
I would say that more, you know, I will speak from stage and I would give advice and, and my life experiences and kind of pull that together in a way that I hope brings value for others and empowers others, not inspires. I'm, I, I feel that inspire is kind of watching a TV show and go, that's inspiring, and then you just nothing changes, whereas empowering is leaving people with something that's relevant to their lives. I'm very committed to that as a speaker and as a facilitator. Um, and then, um, but with my coaching, it's more about being in partnership with someone to to kind of own their power, mm-hmm. you know, or to look at where they've given it away. Yes. Yeah. I think that's so yeah. important as well because coaching is something that everyone, it's it skates on the edge of their consciousness. Yeah, that's right. Not everyone is clear on what it is and I, I feel... I know, or yeah. when they might need it. Or when it. they might need it. They think yeah. it's when things are really bad that you need a coach. No, yeah, when like things therapy. are really bad, you probably need therapy. That's, like, that's, that's a, a different thing. Yeah. yeah, that's different. My role as a coach, we're always looking at progress, mm-hmm. always looking at progress. It doesn't mean that, you know, progress happens in one session and some coaches do one-off sessions. Personally, that doesn't align with me. I would do a minimum of three sessions um, because otherwise there's no accountability, there's no momentum, there's no connection between me and the other person. One session is kind of a nice to have inspiration yeah. and off you go, but it doesn't, it doesn't bring value to the client. Um, and my sweet spot is kind of the six months because yeah. then we create a level of intimacy. Coaching is very, very intimate. And I used to say to my assistant when I first started in coaching, I would say my criteria for someone that I would work with is that I would have to want to spend lunch with them. Yeah. Like we have to connect because I'm in their lives and they're in mine in some ways. Mm. And now it's I would need to want to spend a weekend in the country with them. Great threshold test. You know, yeah. For anything. Really. For anything. <laughs> yeah. Collaborating on work in creating anything like I get to choose as someone that has my own business who I get to spend time with. Mm. And in so- the most intimate relationships I have in some ways are with my clients. And I honour that and I know that they honour it and that we enjoy spending time together because that's, that's actually what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, time. Yeah. Yeah. And then what can we expect from the podcast? Ah, so the podcast is an extension of me realising that, that I'm only one person. Yes. That not everyone has access to coaching but that everyone has inner resources. So for me, creating this podcast is very much Brene Brown's being in the arena or, you know, Roosevelt saying of being in the arena because I've done something a bit different. I've done it different, hoping it's going to be a value. So there's, it's a short form podcast. Mm, I love this. Each episode like is kind of, minutes. yeah, five, six to 10, I think maybe is the longest one, 10 minutes. And the idea is to create a space for people, for the listeners to tap into their inner resources. So I will share a case study but I have brought kind of essence of coaching sessions together Mm -hmm. because I work under ethical guidelines. It has to be confidential. Mm -hmm. Um, None of my clients would, you know, there's, there's none of my client stories there per se, but there are essences. There are topics that are reoccurring all the time. I'm a writer. So I love to tell stories. There's an essence of storytelling in there. And then some of my own personal experiences. So, you know, I ask coaching questions at the beginning. There's a case study in the middle. And then I ask coaching questions at the end and it's a prod. It's just a little prod of what do you now need to do to take action to shift in that area of your life. Um, and, and each one, you know, I'll reveal the titles on the night, but each one is, you know, things that I know people struggle with. So it's kind of the shift towards action, the shift towards connection, the shift towards joy, mm. um, and that people can just tap into them 
just to kind of, I just need something. I just need a little bit of something. And what they don't realise is that they think they might need a little bit of me. What they actually need is a little bit of space to have a little bit of them. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. I'm yeah. so excited. I was just about to say, what are the kind of recurring themes you see? But yeah. now I'm like, everyone just go listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so inevitably I've done what I always do and spent way too much time on Way TA because it's just my favourite, you know, mm. just getting to know like all the bits and, and yeah. intricacies and, and you're just such an interesting human being. But just quickly, Natia, I think in this situation, it, it's another one of those ones where it's a bit artificial to separate out challenges from mm-hmm, the story mm-hmm. and you have covered a lot of them already. Mm. But is there anything that you wanted to just give a nod to as a big challenge along the way that you haven't already kind of covered? I found pregnancy really challenging, mm-hmm. emotionally and physically challenging. I have been practicing yoga probably by that point, oh, let me think, I was 20, for eight years. And I always knew that yoga made things better, always, like That was my go-to. And I got onto my yoga mat when I was pregnant and I tried to get into a posture. And I wasn't like so far gone that I couldn't move. It wasn't about um, the physical kind of bump. And I just sobbed. I just broke down on my mat because it wasn't making it better. Yeah. And actually it turned out that I had prenatal depression. And I remember being in like this internet cafe on a rainy night in London. Yeah. Yeah. In the olden days. (laughs) In the olden days. Back at the internet cafes. Um, And I remember Googling. I'd never heard of prenatal. I'd only heard of postnatal. And it basically said, if you are leaving the country that you've lived in all your life to move to a country you've never been before, which was me, you know, 28 years in England, suddenly about to live, being pregnant, moving, kind of fostering myself out at 28. I'd never met my mother-in-law. I was leaving everything I'd ever known. I was leaving the only home that I'd bought for myself that had me so grounded because no one could ever move me from that home. Like There was so much emotionally going on. I'd had six mothers growing up. I was suddenly about to become a mother. I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if I know how to do that. I've got all these mothers. (laughs) I've got all these mothers, mothers, which actually is a gift because (laughs) I now just take from the the mothering buffet. Like I've had six mothers and they've all had really great points and not so great points and I just have – got all of those um and my <laughs> kids now have all of those <laughs> yeah. um and it brought up stuff around my childhood and what do I remember and I don't have kids I don't have photos from when I was a child like pregnancy was really tough mm. um so that was a really really big challenge um yeah I mean that's the one that comes to mind just because I don't often get to talk about the home birth stuff so I'm kind of like in that space so that was a really big challenge I'm used to moving. I can set up home in a heartbeat. Like I tell you now, if we were in a warehouse space and you went away for six hours, you'd come back and it would be as if I'd lived there for 10 years. You know, that's, and I love interiors and I, home is so important to me. It's my sanctuary. Um, So that's definitely a gift that I've picked up along the way. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm the one that says to my friends and they, I've got a friend that just bought a beach house. I'm like, tell me the dates. I'll come and paint. Let me houseify it. She said we were going to, she goes, we were going to bring in painters. I said, yeah, do that. But I'll come and do your skirting boards. Like, (laughs) I mean, you're not leaving that shit to someone else. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I've got very good eye detail for eye detail. Yeah. So that leads really nicely to the last section, which is play TA, which I should give much more time because I love it so much. But it's really just separating us from, you know, our productivity and our skills. Yes, And all the things we're good at and that we should do and just looking at... What do you do for joy? And I mean, painting is one of them that actually contributes nothing professionally mm, to you. Mm, mm. Looking at the pear tree that I'm staring at yeah, right now. Yeah, I was telling you, you about that before we turned on the mics that um, staring at the pear tree. So one of my joys is gardening. I'm an avid gardener. Um, and I read that you love Country Star magazine. Oh my God. It's your joy. It's my porn. It's my safe. <laughs> I mean, it you is. took it to the next level. <laughs> took it back there. Took it back there. It is. And, and we actually, we're moving to the country. So we're going to be moving an hour to 90 minutes out of Melbourne. Wow. 
once my, my daughter's still at school, well, my son's still at school. Like we need, there's a few things that we need to hold back on, but that's been a conversation for a while. Since being in a caravan going around Australia for 387 days with the kids, um, we were going to do kind of the urban reno and, you know, mm. on, on our house. And I just said to my husband, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I, we moved here. We had eight established fruit trees. I've planted 25 since we've been here. <laughs> She's an um, overachiever. And I, no, I just look. There's a beautiful phrase that we have written out um, outside, which is the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. Yes. And so I see. I do see one of my. I see. Tree, I love trees. I love them. I think they are the guardians of so much that humans need. And one of the reasons that I need to move is because I need to plant more trees. Like, honestly, yeah. it sounds weird, but that's one thing I need to do. Um, I love growing vegetables for my family and for my neighbours. Um, I live in Brunswick. That's just what we do here. I know. I was going to say, it's <laughs> so that's just relevant. What we do. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, so that brings me joy. Um, what about pot- your endurance running? Yes. That brings me joy because, um, as I said, core value is growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love running nature trees. That's definitely my environment that I love. Um, it's my me time. I yeah, I just yeah, I just love it. You know, I run through the week as well. I'm always I train six days a week, mm-hmm. um, but I love running and I love yoga and I love strength training. Um, all those three things. I need to move my body mm-hmm. every day. Um, it's part of me that allows me to do what I do for me to be a service to my clients on my run days and my coaching client days. Oh, um, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's me filling my cup so I can be present to them, you know. Um, and if ever I think, oh, just don't know this morning. And it's funny, I will say that to myself and I know I'm going. It's such a habit now. I have this the same routine with my running now for maybe the last five years. I know that I'm going to go and get up and do my run, even if my brain tries to play games. Yeah, <laughs> just um, trying to keep things interesting. Yeah, just trying to keep things interesting. It's like, just stop, just get out there. Um, so I love endurance running, love being out in nature and love the trail sisters that I have found along the way. You know, mm-hmm. so I've got a running weekend down in Anglesey with a few oh, trail sisters. Um, some of them are running the big race. I was going to do the 50K, but I've actually dropped down because I've had a few niggles and I want to use my body for as long as possible. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoy running. I want to run as long as possible. So I just thought for this race, I did a massive race at the beginning of this year. It was 100K, right? 104K. <laughs> Um, elevation gain of seven thousand, seven and a half thousand meters. I followed along with. Oh, that. did you? Yeah. And the crazy thing about that race, I did that to get out of my comfort zone because I hate running downhill, and I found that I was restricting the races I wanted to go into Based because of the, the downhill. Fear. Yeah. So I love the climb, but the downhill. And <laughs> you're the opposite of me. <laughs> oh, really? And I love downhill. Oh, and it's funny in races, I would just motor past people on the up and then I'd be like uh, okay That's so now I'm 85 <laughs> yeah everyone else is running down and I'm like just wait for me um and so I decided I'm gonna do this race and when I got actually training in the dandelions and the first time I got to that hill I just burst into tears I was so scared yeah. and then I had to coach myself like my inner resources I was like okay so what are you scared of okay you're scared of falling what else are you scared of? You're scared of falling and there's no one around. Mm. And I was like, right, well, that's a reasonable reason to turn around and not go down the hill. And I didn't actually physically turn up the hill, but I sort of visualised my body doing it. And then I remember just being, if you turn around, you are always, always going to regret that you didn't go down the hill. Yes. So then I thought, okay, just do it. And I went a little bit and I fell over. And I was like, okay, great. So that's out of the way. Yeah, worst case. It's Done. not that bad. I mean, Done. I've I got up hand. again. But that's okay. And then I did it. And then I was like, okay, so now you need to do this three times. So up, down, up, down, up, down three times. 
And I was very committed to that race. And um, 40 of us began that race. I had no idea if I would finish. I had no idea if I would finish. I just knew that I was committed to getting in the arena and seeing. And I realised it about... Well, I didn't realise. My team realised about 87K. No, I realised. I said, where's everyone... Where, Where's everyone gone? And the feedback was uh, they've of the 40 people, most of them have gone home and you're the only woman that's still going. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, but I still had to I – I mean, I was delirious. I was up for 28 hours. I'd been going for a long time. But then when I crossed the finish line and two of us finished, one was a Scottish guy – and I thought, yeah, because you were training in the bloody Hebrides probably. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. Um, but I, um, I crossed that finish line. I emotionally was just exhausted. My daughter held me. Like it, um, I think, yeah, you saw you follow this on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Um, because I wanted to share the journey of an endurance race. Not a lot of people get to see it. Yeah. And I also in that, like, we only see people crossing finishing lines with arms up. Like it just, and I couldn't, I didn't even have the, the mindset. There was nothing going on in my brain that thought, oh, I'm going to end this in a certain way. I'd never stayed awake for 28 hours with my body consistently moving. I'd never been in that situation. I had no idea what it was going to be like crossing that finishing line. But there was nothing left. And Sam Gash had said to me, because she she had paced me for the last second to last lap, she said to me, you don't want to leave anything out here. Like the time cut off. I had 15 minutes. When I finished, I had 15 minutes until I would, would have been would have cut been off. Would have been cut off. Oh, my gosh. Which is quite close. In a long race like that, it, oh, that's it doesn't very sound cl- short, it but does, it's short. But it's short because... And, and it's funny because actually that final lap was the quickest lap. I think I had done the whole 28 hours because it was just like, and it was funny at one point, Sam said to me, take another caffeine gel, you know? And I was like, no, no, because I don't want to not sleep tonight. She's like, <laughs> you'll sleep. She goes, are you serious? She goes, this is the goal you've been working towards for eight weeks. And now you're focusing, what, the goal is sleep? <laughs> <laughs> sort it out. And that won't be a problem. And that will me. not be a problem. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that was an amazing thing for me. And what it had for me, it wasn't that I then thought, what's the next big race you can do? What's the next big race? What it made me think is you've been sitting on this podcast get in the arena if you can do this that you thought you couldn't do do the next thing that you're not quite sure you can do and I think anytime we push ourselves for growth that it opens up the opportunity for the thing that we have no idea what it is we have no idea what it is but finishing crossing that finishing line is the only female finisher did not make me think and what's the longest race I can now do mm. it made me think if you didn't know you were capable of this what else can you do? What else can you do and where else can you be bold and where else can you get on the start line and just kind of see what happens? And that, for me, is the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I am so excited. <laughs> what a lovely way to finish. Two quick questions yes. just to finish Oh, we're up. finishing already? Yes. Wow. I just gosh. feel like I've already taken up more than an hour no, of your time. No, not at all. No, let's go. <laughs> let's go. What are the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Okay. I mean, given how prolific you are, it's kind of yeah. difficult. No, no it isn't because actually this is the introvert. I'm also very private. There's a lot mm. that people don't know. So I'm going to tell you things that I think not many people know. Ooh, Some know. First these. one, I know every single word to the musical Le Miserable and Miss Saigon and I would sing anyone to the ground unless they're <laughs> the original cast. Amazing. All over it. That all over it because those two musicals became my refuge when I landed with my last foster parents I basically spent a lot of time in my bedroom with those two musicals like with the in the old days we had the DVD with the actual words um and yes. I just learned every single word and my son has just been cast as Jean Valjean in Les Mis at his school play and I said to him I said oh 
oh my gosh, I knew there was a reason why I gave birth to you so I can <laughs> vicariously play Jean Valjean. And I'm like, darling, let's rehearse. Let's rehearse. He's like, mum, I've just got up. I'm like, no, no, I'll be Jean Valjean and you can be Javert and let's just, you know. In the audience, they're going to be like, ma'am, please <laughs> yeah, stop, please stop singing, singing along. Can you please it's stop singing? It's the student's yeah. time to shine. But I have actually <laughs> offered the director, I have had said. Some no, help. I have. <laughs> In that, you know, look, I've done enough of my own personal development work to know what lines would be crossing. But I, I did that... say to him, it's a huge production. I'm really happy to um, assist in any way that oh, I can. Just share my expertise. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I am not a stage mum, I promise. No, no, no. But he, and he said to me, look, we're going to have to rehearse three, three scenes at a time, blah, 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 blah. That would be really, really great. And I said, look, only in a way that I can contribute. I know myself well enough to not step over the line. Yep. Meanwhile, yeah. Benji's like, Mum, you're over the line <laughs> yeah. already. Mum, I'm actually playing Jean Valjean. <laughs> yeah, it's my time. It's my turn. <laughs> so that's one thing. That's a great one. Another one is, which is a little bit about this arena stuff, and this may seem, actually, it's, it's all part of who I am, and we all have these little things. If one you're going to say weird, then there's no such thing. Yeah, weird is my favorite. One of my favourite bags that I have that I bought from the School of Life, which is a brand and organisation yes. that I love, says, no one is normal. And that's very true. And I think we aspire for this normal thing that doesn't even exist in the same way that women aspire to be the perfect woman that doesn't exist. Mm. And it just causes pain and sorrow. So whenever I'm carrying that bag, I make sure that everyone can read it. No one is normal. Anyway, my husband came home one night um, quite late. He'd been out at an event. I was sat watching something and I was sobbing, sobbing. I'm a very emotional person. I'm happy <laughs> to be an emotional person that can show my feelings and own my feelings and mm. I honour my feelings. And he's like, walks in, he goes, babe, what's wrong? <laughs> Amazing. That's what. And he swung the, <laughs> he swung my laptop round, and it was it was either Britain's Got Talent or America, Americans Got Talent. <laughs> so and one good. of my favourite things to do is to watch these people that have got in the arena, and I yes. never want them to win because I've had an insight into that industry and how that can play out. I don't want them to win, but the fact that they have stood up and said, "This is what I have to offer. This is who I am. Do you want it?" it doesn't get more vulnerable than that. And I get so incredibly moved. And I will then like highlight links to show the ones that I think my daughter will like or my son will like or ones that inspire me. So that's something that I do. I love it. That's something that I do. Every third episode of the podcast is going to be Kemi's <laughs> breakdown of, of the yeah, contestants exactly. on America's Got Talent. But not only the auditions. Only the auditions. Yeah, only the auditions. So it's just kind of like it would just say auditions of 2019. And I'll just kind of do a binge watch on a Friday night, you know, and then I'd be like, oh, I haven't watched any of that for a couple of months. I'll go in and have a look. So that's one of my things. That's what a great third one. thing. I've got 2.5. What's your maiden name? My maiden name is Barua. Oh, yeah. because yeah. I saw Nick was doing A-List's website yeah. and your husband's surname came up and I was like, oh, Nick Vapil. And then yeah. I was like, oh, duh. Like yeah, yeah, Nick Vapil yeah. is not Kemi's original no, maiden name. No, that's right. That's right. Barua is my maiden I've name. I've never asked you that. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And it's funny, sometimes in my head if I do something, I'll go, nice one, Barua. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. I still have that kind of link in some ways to that. And reflex. Yeah. Nice. And I chose, I chose as a feminist to take my husband's name because his family gave me so much when I moved here. You know, mm. I live with his, in, we lived four generations in one house for three and a half years. And um, yeah, they were at my citizenship celebration last night oh, and they're just an incredible so family. So I was very happy to take name i feel like we've missed i haven't given you my third thing that people don't know about yes, me third thing i was just buying you time oh you're buying me time the third thing that people don't know about me probably actually is that i went and did something called aversion therapy 
So, yeah, so with some of my childhood stuff, what ended up happening is I had a really bad insect phobia because of some of the living situations I found myself in. And I knew that I wanted to travel. Once I'd got to my last foster parents, I knew I wanted to travel. And I was cutting off my life because I wouldn't go anywhere if there were insects, which kind of shuts down a lot of options. (laughs) You know, friends would say, do you want to come here? And I'd be like, "Uh, are there insects there? Like, so it become a real, you know, it was a phobia that was starting to operate in my life. I mean, you live in Australia. Well, I do now. Oh, that was hideous coming here yeah <laughs> oh my gosh at the citizenship ceremony they said last night for some of you your journey here would have been i don't think there were refugees there last night but we're all migrants so for some of you your journeys you know would have been difficult and i thought well actually i got on a plane at heathrow and landed in melbourne and i thought to myself the most difficult part of my journey we, we were, had dinner afterwards was when um my very good friend and my husband we were driving to canberra from melbourne doing a road trip and we'd stopped on the side of the road and it was hot and i was pregnant oh. and i got out and oh. there were flies everywhere and oh, i tried no. to run down the road and i was screaming going to my husband you didn't tell me there were all these flies here <laughs> as you know where was i going yeah. Um, so I had this aversion <laughs> therapy where I had to um, – the things that I had main issues with because of the living environments were fleas and cockroaches. So I had to go and see this therapist and he gave me like – and it was long before we had this idea of mindfulness. He gave me a relaxation tape and I had to mark on a piece of paper – my level of anxiety when I looked at pictures of those insects. I had to go to the library and get pictures of cockroaches and pictures of fleas and and expose myself to them, exposure therapy. And then I'd have to measure on the form my anxiety level when I looked at that picture. Um, And then if it was over, I think five, I then had to listen to the relaxation tape. And I just had to keep doing that. Like it was very thing that I had to commit to because I, it was the commitment of, I don't want this phobia because I want to travel and I'm not going anywhere with this phobia. And then the actions I had to take was, you know, it was kind of self-motivated. And at the time my foster dad actually had bees at the bottom of the garden. So I would, you know, every day just get one step closer to the beehive, one step closer to the beehive. Um, So, yeah, that thing of choice, you know, that we get to choose. I realized that that was shutting down my options Mm. and there was a way out. And so I took that way out. So I don't think I've shared that very often. That's a really interesting one. Yeah, right. It is, isn't (laughs) it? This image of pregnant Kemi running down the street. Oh, my God. And then I remember saying to my in-laws, we're in Canberra, we've gone for an evening walk and there was an insect. Because actually it really made a difference. I will be the person now that does not. I've never had a thing about spiders. Spiders were not part of what happened. Never had a thing about spiders. Spiders I'm fine with. But I will be the one now that will sit around bees. Everyone's run off and I'm just like, who cares? Like, it's no thing. I love, as you know, I love camping, spend a lot of time hiking. I, this doesn't affect me. So it really worked for me. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to go through, but I'm so glad that I did it because now I get to be anywhere. And it's not, it doesn't bother you. Doesn't bother me. Amazing. Not at all. So I highly <laughs> recommend aversion therapy for anyone that has, it, it works. If you do the work. Yes, of course. That's like of anything. Course. It works if you do the work. If you do the work. Yeah. And very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite quote? I knew you were going to ask me this. I'm a quote head too. Oh, yes. Mm. It's hard to narrow it down. It is hard to you narrow it down. You can do a few. If you okay. Few. Okay. I'm going to do... Because having just come back from training with Brene Brown and now being able to facilitate her work with organisations, her quote that speaks the most to me is, leaders who live into their values are never silent about hard things. So powerful. And that, especially in Australia at the moment, is the conversation around diversity and inclusion. And the organisations that I work with that are paying more than lip service to that, I just, it's just so 
incredible and so inspiring to do work with these leaders that are willing to call out what's going on, mm. um, whether it's representation, whether that's gender, whether that's ethnicity, culturally, ableism, whatever that is. So that That is so true. The leaders that are willing to say, do you know what, this isn't right. Mm. And it may have been that way and certain people may have benefited from be- it being this way, but we're not going to survive if it stays this way. Mm. Um, so that's the quote that I love of Brené's. Um, One of my quotes for this year personally is we can do hard things. I love how there's a common theme, hard things. Yeah, because I think it's the hard things that we're willing to go through that actually give the biggest rewards at the end of it. Absolutely. And and we struggle. We think it's going to be hard or I don't know or I might fail or it's embarrassing or I might get rejected or I might look stupid or I might – and it's like, yeah, all those things and – the gold that you will never access unless all those things show up. So true. Oh, you are such a wise woman. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and time. It took us a very long time to make our calendars align, but I'm so grateful. My pleasure. And especially knowing the podcast is coming up, I can't wait to get people on it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your excitement around it. I think that's the beautiful thing about being women that are entrepreneurs and I know that we operate in the same networks is Mm. that we share and we collaborate and that you know that to just celebrate each other's success you know and to help each other with whatever our individual versions of success looks like so thank you for your excitement and enthusiasm (laughs) I always think success doesn't halve when you share it it doubles Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. And one of the things I love about coaching is that I'm a silent partner. Unless my client decides to share that I'm their coach, no one knows who my clients are. Mm. And I love seeing the success of other people. Like I, and one of my jobs as well is to remind them to celebrate. I love to celebrate, Mm. but to remind us, I think as entrepreneurs, we can just keep on going, keep on going, keep on going to the point that we hate that what we're doing, it all seems too hard. We don't get performance reviews. We don't get bonuses, Mm. you know, unless we decide we're giving us ourselves one so those moments to go actually I'm going to celebrate that my website is up I'm going to celebrate that I did get that client I'm going to celebrate that I got out of bed this morning and I made those three calls that are really hard for me to make and then when we're with other people that are also in the arena every single day that gets really exciting it's kind of like wow (laughs) like we are literally going to change the world so excited yeah yeah and women (laughs) women right now with our voices well we are we are changing the world and such an advocate of us sharing our stories and our struggles and our challenges because it gives other people access to do exactly the same and then we're all together changing the world and it doesn't get you know what more what more could we want than to make a difference if you aren't motivated by that I don't know how to help you. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness me, it is no wonder Kemi is such an in-demand speaker and the podcast is going to go gangbusters. Kemi just has such integrity and wisdom. I love being around her. As always, please take a screenshot now while you're listening and share the yay with everyone tagging at Kemi Neckvapil and myself so we know what you thought and who's listening. And of course, tune in to Kemi's podcast when it launches this week. If you want more of her in person, my amazing friends at Business Chicks are having her back at 9 to Thrive Melbourne this year as she's been a crowd favourite over and over. Head to their page to buy tickets to that too. I know it hasn't been a full week since our last episode. I've recorded enough episodes to take us through to after our wedding as we have a heap of travel in between but there's so much that you're getting three episodes this fortnight. Woo! (laughs) Hope you're having an amazing day and are seizing your yay.